You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Time of the year, the most wonderful time of the year, right? Uh, And I really do think that if you know me, uh, Christmas is probably one of my favorite times of the year. But this is also an extremely stressful time of the year. We work super hard to get the decorations up, uh, to buy the presents, cook the food. We travel to family gatherings. Many of them are out of town. Um, We sleep on couches, sit in traffic, rush from here to there. And now that it's after Christmas, now that it's after the 25th, we get to put away all those decorations And deal with the debt that we may have incurred to buy the presents. And the extra pounds that we may have gained from those family gatherings. And now we're making resolutions. Like if I can just work a little bit more to pay off those bills. Um, If I can just exercise, I'm going to start this new exercise plan and get rid of these pounds that I've gained Or maybe you're thinking, if I reach out to that family member and try to smooth things over, I'll be able to mend that relationship. Well, today's passage that I want to look at in Isaiah speaks to this, speaks to the stress and gives us a way out by God's grace, out of that stress, out of that. And we'll see today in the passage, we'll see a group of people that in the midst of even extreme fear, trust in the Lord and find salvation. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. In your uh, Bible in the the pew, or I guess it's not a pew, the chair in front of you, um, there's a paper paper Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, that uh, you can take that Bible with you. If that Bible is tattered and torn, uh, just leave it on the seat next to you when you leave, and we have better Bibles in the back. We'll give you a a better Bible as a gift than like a torn paper Bible. Uh, But if you turn in that Bible to page 342, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. We're just going to look at verse 15 today. This is God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak boldly and truthfully through me. God, that you would strengthen me, just a man, a feeble, uh, sinful, in many ways, uh, uneducated man. But God, this is still your word. This is still your holy word. And the strength of today's message doesn't lie in me, it lies in you. And pray that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word, that you would change us and shape us and mold us according to your word today. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well today, just to help us kind of think about this, I want to structure this in three points. And these points that I want to look at from Isaiah 30, I want to look at the problem, the prophecy, and the promise. The problem, the prophecy, and the promise. And the promise. Well, first, we're going to look at the problem. To understand the problem, though, we have to understand a little bit of the context of the passage. 
And so much like a Star Wars movie might do, you know how at the beginning they have like kind of the context will stroll off into the uh, this galaxy distance. Um, that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to give you just a brief view into the context of this story up until the present day of this story in Isaiah 30. So, we have the music, dramatic music. It was the time of the divided kingdom. The ten tribes of Israel to the north with the capital city of Samaria and the two tribes of Judah to the south with the capital city of Jerusalem. Both kingdoms had their own kings and both kingdoms were the chosen people of God. Both Israel and Judah were subject to the commands and privy to the promises of God. God had commanded both to turn away from the worship of idols and to seek him, the one true God. If they did, they would live in peace and in prosperity. But if they did not, they would experience God's judgment in the way of foreign armies. This cycle went on and on. One king and his people would repent and return to the Lord, and the Lord would relent of the disaster he foretold. But of course, shortly after, that king would die, and then the people led by another king would turn from the Lord back to idols. And in Israel, this northern kingdom with these ten tribes, in Israel they had several kings in a row that had turned from the Lord. Ending with Hosea, who the Bible tells us did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and finally in 722 B.C., God sent the Assyrian army as punishment. The Assyrian army did not wipe out the city right away, but they encamped around the city and exacted tribute. Much like a bully stealing lunch money, the king of Assyria said, I'm going to beat you up if you don't give me money. And so they gave him money. And this should have been Israel's warning from the Lord. They should have repented then, but instead King Hosea of Israel decides to try to make an alliance with Egypt The king of Assyria is furious when King Hosea stops paying tribute and he invades the land and over a period of a few years captures it and the entire territory takes Samaria and takes all of the people into exile. And 2 Kings 17 tells us why. And this, talking about what I just said, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Well fast forward about 20 years and we find ourselves in today's passage. Assyria, this is the last part of our our credits, right, of our our, our, uh, context. Assyria has grown powerful and prideful. In the past, the surrounding countries had been terrified to attack Israel or Judah because they had seen and heard the horrifying rumors of God's uh, deliverance and how he powerfully delivered them from their enemies. But now, Assyria had just defeated Israel. Judah had been paying tribute to Assyria for years because of the evil of their previous king, King Ahaz. But now, Hezekiah is on the scene, and Hezekiah wants out of the contract, so he stops paying tribute to the king of Assyria And the king of Assyria doesn't like this. And so he threatens Judah and he sends messengers who threaten them. And so many of the people and advisors seek an alliance with Egypt in order to rebel against Assyria. And that's the setting for today's passage. So what is the problem? Well, the problem according to Isaiah 30 verses 1 through 7 is that many people are seeking to make an alliance with Egypt. They're not seeking the Lord but trusting in Egypt. In Egypt, 
What's wrong with Egypt, you say? Isn't it a geographically strategic ally? Wouldn't they be a great ally? Well, first of all, the main problem is not necessarily Egypt, but rather that the people are making plans about an alliance without seeking the Lord. Without going to Isaiah the prophet and asking him what the Lord says, the people were ready to make a plan without seeking the Lord. In fear, they sought to find a quick, easy fix. And isn't that how we are so often? We see a situation that looks bleak and we immediately go into planning mode. We hypothesize all the things that could go wrong and we think about all the people who could or would help us. We start making a list of all the action items and the folks that we should contact and before we know it, we have a complete plan in place. But is that God's best for us? To be hasty to plan and lethargic to pray? To be quick to put a plan into place, but be slow, if ever, to pray and ask the Lord for direction, wisdom, and help? How many of us, when we have difficulty at work, rack our brains to come up with a plan, yet never stop and pray? How many of us, when we have a relational strife and difficulties in our family, plan and scheme until we think we have it solved, but we never pray for a closer relationship or for reconciliation, or healing of broken relationships? How many of us, when we have financial difficulty, research new jobs, or get credit card deals, or post items for sale on the internet, and never stop and ask the Father of all mercies for provision? The main problem wasn't Egypt, but it was the rush to make a plan and to trust in Egypt alone, apart from the Lord. But there's also a sinful irony in trusting Egypt. When God refers to himself in verse 15, he says he is the Holy One of Israel. This is his title. This is his name, the one that he gave to Moses when Moses said, Hey, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me when I'm asking for the captive Hebrew people to be let go? God said he was to be the Holy One of Israel. God's name was to be a reminder of his power and how he miraculously brought his people out of the land of Egypt. He did it with a mighty hand. He did it out of love for his people and out of love for his glory. He brought his people out, out of the land of Egypt. Egypt, where they were slaves. Egypt, where they were worked almost to the point of death. But for so many of the people, ever since God delivered them, they just sought to return to Egypt. And God had done nothing up until this point in Isaiah but show his love and his power for his people. He's done everything to communicate the plans he has for his people, plans to prosper them, plans to make them a great nation for his glory, and yet they still, many of them, seek to return to Egypt. It's a shame. And when we read passages like this, if we aren't careful, we read with a prideful cynicism that says something like, man, I can't believe those dumb Israelites. But are we much different? Replace the enslaving, life-robbing Egypt with a besetting sin, and I think we can all relate. If you replace Egypt with the idol or idols you most struggle with, I think we can relate, can we not? You know that you're working long hours or that one more project will take you away from your family more than they can handle, but you can't say no to the money. You know that the alcohol is slowly killing you and robbing you of your life, but you still go back 
hoping this time maybe things will be different. Maybe this time it will provide the relief you seek. You know that that adulterous relationship is killing you inside and that God's design for marriage is better, but you think the happiness offered there is better than your current situation. And on and on and on it could go. We hear God's word telling us there's a better way, telling us the path that we are on leads to death, but for so many of us, we're in the same boat that many of the people in Judah were in. We trust in the familiar, what we can see, more than what God declares to be true. See, the problem was that they, they rushed to, to plan without God. They were trusting in the familiar, trusting in what they could see, trusting in Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord. Well, if that's the problem, what's the prophecy? What, is, what does God say to these people through Isaiah? What does God speak through his prophet? What does he want these people who are considering Egypt as an ally to know? Does he suggest a better ally? Yes, in a way he does. Look at what he says, verse 30, or sorry, chapter 30, verse 15. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. God says, you want to know how to be saved from the Assyrians? It's by returning to me. And that word returning is actually the same word that we use for repentance. So he's saying, and repentance means to completely turn around, to turn away and go the other way. God says the first step to being saved from the Assyrians is to repent. Now, I want to pause here for a second, though. I want us to really understand and put ourselves in their shoes and understand the fear, the great fear that these people must have been feeling. The northern kingdom, so again, the, the ten tribes to the north, Israel, their brothers, God's chosen people had all just been carried away into exile. Their cities destroyed, people killed, and Israel was five times larger than Judah. Judah's just two little tribes. And Judah has just done the same thing that got, they think Israel did, the same thing that's going to get Judah uh, attacked. Israel stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. Judah just stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria comes to Judah and says, you guys shouldn't have done that. Now, we'll, we'll look at what he says specifically. But he basically says, you shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm going to wipe you out. And so they're, they're, they're covered in fear. Put yourself in their shoes. This is unlike much of anything you or I have ever faced. This wasn't, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. This wasn't, oh, I'm so close to an A if I can just ace the final. This wasn't even the fear of a spouse leaving you. This was life and death fear. This was, I don't want to be captured and have my family have to watch my wife ravished and then me, the husband, forced to watch and slaughtered while they drag mine and my countrymen's dead bodies through the streets and then take my children and wife to another country in exile. This is real fear. Can you imagine that kind of fear? That kind of fear tests you. That kind of fear forces you to revert to what is familiar, where you have been in your heart, and it's here that the Lord's gracious, merciful, and loving call through Isaiah comes to repent and rest. He says, turn from your sin to his people. Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in Egypt and turn to me. 
But he doesn't just say to repent. He says to rest. What does that word rest mean? Well, there are two Hebrew words commonly used for rest in the Bible. Um, The first word is uh, nuach. And that's the word that we get Noah's name from. It's nuach. It means to rest or remain or dwell. And that here in Isaiah 30 verse 15, that's the word that's used here. It's nuach. But there's another word which, have all, which would have also come to mind when they heard this prophecy. And that word is sabbat. Sabbat is the word that we get the word Sabbath from. That is the rest that God did on the seventh day of creation. After he worked hard six days in creating the world, he sabbated. That word for rest means to stop. Not to rest as in to regain strength like nuach, but to cease working. And that's what God did on the seventh day. And that's what he commanded his people. God commanded his people to begin a rhythm of working six days and resting on the seventh day. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about why did God give them the command for rest? I mean, I'm sure they needed it. We all need rest. God definitely, graciously reminds us that physically we need rest. And some of us here today need to hear this. You need to hear that, that you need to stop. You need rest. In the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. You need to stop working so hard and take a break. Your body needs rest. God has, commanded, or God has created us to need rest. And for sure that's one of the things God has in mind when he commands this. But I don't think it's the main point. I mean, we all need to eat, right? God doesn't command eating. God doesn't command regular eating. He does command and he does institute feasts, but he doesn't say that we need to regularly eat. So why does he command rest? And why one day? Why one day in seven of rest? One whole day? Why does he command this rest? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there now. But Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Here's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, And made it holy. See, even in this verse, you see that physical rest isn't what's in mind here. Otherwise, while you rested, you'd have your slaves or or the sojourners could work while they're with you, right? But God says the reason for Sabbath is because God rested on the seventh day. Is this just a command not to one-up the Lord? Right, like God's like, well, I needed rest after the sixth day, so you better not work more than six days in a row and make me look bad. Right? No way. No, God didn't rest. He stopped. Why did he stop? So that we would stop. Why do we stop? To remember him. To worship him. 
The reason for the Sabbath is not our physical rest, but for us to set aside one day to remember him, to worship him. We're called to stop our work, to remember that it's not us who ultimately work, it is him. The rest we're called to is a stopping of all our striving and working, a stopping of thinking that the world will come crashing down around us if we don't fix everything. To stop and recognize that he alone works both to will and to work for our good. And I think that's what's in mind here in Isaiah. God through Isaiah is calling his people back to himself and calling them to rest in him, to dwell and to remain, to remember that they are not the ones who will save themselves from Assyria. God is. So what about you? I know we're not in the same terrible situation, I'm sure, but I'm sure you have fears. I'm sure you have plenty, and like me, you're striving to work and fix these, thinking that it all depends on you. Is it your work? Do you have a project or a number of projects that you're working on, that you're stressing over, and that you feel the pressure of? Are you thinking that it all depends on you, and that your hard work and planning is what's going to save the day? Or how about your relationship? The one that's not going the way that you want. Are you convinced that if you read just one more book or pursue just one more conversation with that individual or try to change that one thing, then that relationship will be good? Or financially, are you struggling to make ends meet and thinking that if you could just get one more job or maybe sleep a little bit less, you can make it work? I believe God's word here in Isaiah is for us too. Turn from your trust in yourself and the plans that you've made and turn instead to him. Turn to him and stop your work. Stop long enough to remember that he is the one who ultimately works. He is the one who can make your work succeed. He is the one who can bring your relationship back. He's the one who can bless you financially. Repent and rest. That was the prophecy to the people of Judah. Turn, turn from trusting in Egypt, God said. Repent and rest in me. Well, if that's the prophecy, the problem, the prophecy, let's look at the promise. What does he say? Verse 15, again, he says, In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. What is God telling his people? Well, remember the fear that they must have felt. Remember, God has just called them to repent, to stop, to rest. But remember also that the word here for rest is nuach, which is not just to stop but to dwell. So it makes sense. There's, there's two kinds of stopping. One version is more like maybe a stop sign, right? Like, like Sabbath, where you're going and then you stop, but you could start going again, right? You stop, but there's no dwelling that's in mind. Nuach is not that way. Nuach means you stop and continue stopping for a while. And I think that's why the promise in this section is so key. These fearful, rightfully so, these fearful people struggle to stop and stay stopping, to dwell, to remain. The natural tendency for someone who is fearful, who feels the world depends on them to work, would, they would struggle to, to rest. They would struggle to remain. Their mind would be racing with all that there is to do, all the possibilities of the work they could do or should do. But here God is lovingly telling them, promising them, that in the quietness and in trust, 
It's so important to see. It is in quietness and in trust. Trust in who? Well, earlier, in all their worrying and scheming, they were trusting in themselves, trusting in Egypt. But here God says, repent and rest in me. And while you are resting in the resting, trust in me and you will find strength. Trust, he says, that I have your good in mind. Trust that I am more than capable to take care of you. Trust that I will protect and provide for you, and you will find strength. It's so hard to do. And I don't even have anything as close to what they had on the line here. But that is what God wants his people to do. That's what he's always wanted. That's why from the very beginning, he rested on the seventh day to instill a pattern in us where we would rest and remember that we aren't the ones who make things happen. He is. Trust is an ambiguous thing, but practically here, God's people trust by resting. The way to trust is to rest. And in so doing, God says his people will have strength and ultimately will be saved. So what about you? What does quietness and trust look like for you? What does it look like in your work? What does it look like in your school, in your relationships, in your finances? How can we rest? How can we dwell in quietness and in trust? I could spend another 20 or 30 minutes unpacking this and practically applying this. We don't have that kind of time this morning. So I'm just going to address Two groups generally with application. And then I want to close uh, in a story that kind of summarizes this so we can look at it. The first group that I want to address is that of Christians. Those who are and have, have and are trusting in Christ's finished work of redemption. If you're a Christian here today, you are currently trusting in Christ's work on your behalf And the application I would have for you, it's to spend some time thinking deeply about your life. Where are you prone to worry and fear? What areas of your life do you tend to think are up to you to make successful? Spend some time praying and asking the Lord's help to trust him in those areas. And then, as way of application, I would suggest that you do the hard work, and it is hard work, to rest. I mean, think about it. Has anybody here ever been on vacation? It's a lot of work to go on vacation, right? And when you get back from vacation, it's a lot of work. I've got a friend, he and his wife are are going to Italy, and every time I see this guy, he's got a new textbook that he's going through about all the things that there are to do in Italy. He's got this spreadsheet of every day and all the activities that they're going to do. It makes me tired to look at this guy's vacation plans. It's a lot of work. To rest. Think about the people that celebrated the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath celebration involved food and involved having people over to your house. Friends and family, once a week, you had to stop your work. So you had to go, and this was for the Jewish people, it was Saturday, but you had to go and you had to collect twice as much food on Friday. You had to make all these preparations on Friday because when Saturday came, which theirs started at night, Friday night, when, when Saturday came, everything stopped. You, you couldn't go to the store and go pick up that milk that you forgot. So you had to go through and you had to plan once a week all of this work to rest. Again, I don't think the Sabbath is about rejuvenation as much as it's about worship. 
Anyway, I would suggest that we do the hard work that it takes to rest. And with our schedule, it makes sense for it to be a Sunday. Um, So maybe it's a Sunday for you. If you decide Sunday is your day of rest, make Sunday your day of rest, worship, and fellowship. Have a family join you for lunch after church. Work hard not to plan on your work, whatever your work is that day. And use that day as a time to worship and remind yourself of this. Listen to this. Remind yourself of God's sovereignty and providence in your life. Use that time to trust him with your work, relationships, school, finances, etc. And you will find strength from him in that. So that's for Christians. If you're a Christian here today, that would be my application for you to, to work on that rest, to use that time to worship the Lord and trust him. The second group are for non-Christians. Those of you today who you would say, no, I, I'm not trusting in Christ's finished work for my redemption. And if that is you, the Bible warns you that you are in a perilous grave danger. The danger you face is worse than that of the people of Judah in today's passage. And if you do not put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible is clear that you will experience the fullness of God's wrath for your sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, God's plan from the beginning was to provide Sabbath we see examples of this all across the Bible. From the garden to Noah, whose name is Noah, which means rest. And Noah and his family were safe, not because they swam, not because of swimming, but because they rested in the boat. We could look at Moses when God brings his people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. They didn't escape because of their power and work, but by trusting in God's word, putting the lamb's blood on the doorway just as he commanded and trusting in him. Or we could look at the countless stories in the Bible of battles and wars won not by terrific military strategies, but by trusting in the Lord. And we could go on and on, but I do want to give one more example. The ultimate example, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. The Sabbath the entire Bible was written to point to. The Sabbath, the entire Bible was written to point to, which for you today means life if you trust in him, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath. Jesus was God's planned Sabbath from the beginning. Jesus is the one in whom we rest. We don't earn right standing with God by our good works. We never could. We can never scheme and plan enough to be right before God. No amount of penitence, no right living could do it. But that's what you're saying today if you're not trusting in Christ. You're saying that you are Lord of your own life. You are saying that you can figure a way out somehow and find a way to make it to heaven. But the truth is that God is the one, the only one, who can save you. And he has done that through Jesus. Jesus is our rest We're still called to holy lives, absolutely. We're still called to let the Spirit put put to death sin in our bodies, but that's not what saves us. In repentance and rest is where you find salvation. Repent and turn from your sin 
and turn to the Lord. Rest from your working and striving to earn salvation and rest in the finished work of Christ for your redemption and find life and strength as you quietly trust in him. That's the application for you today. If you're not a Christian, trust in him. Rest in the finished work of Christ for you. Well, I want to I wanna finish with the story that, that gives us a, a picture of what happened. So we, we set up the context of these people. Judah stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. He's threatening to kill them. Israel's been wiped out during this time. They're fearful. And right now, if we just leave, we have no idea what's happened, right? It's a cliffhanger like so many of those Netflix series do. That episode ended, and you're like, oh, man, I just got to keep watching. And it's automatically starting. Uh, well, this one's going to automatically start for you, so you'll be able to see what happens. It's from 2 Kings 18 and 19. I'm going to read much of it, and I'm going to kind of comment so it keeps us uh, with what's going on so we don't lose it here. But if you want to go back and look, it's 2 Kings 18 and 19. Here's what it said, starting 18, verse 18 of chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah. So remember, Hosea, king of Israel. We've got two kingdoms, northern and southern. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So what they're setting up is Hezekiah is now the king in the southern kingdom of Judah. With me? Got it. Okay. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that, his David, all that uh, David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among all those who were before him. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Listen to this. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So that's the beginning of what our story was today, right? So Hezekiah says, man, I'm not serving this king. I'm, I'm going to stop paying him money. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So Hezekiah is a good dude. And this guy trusts the Lord and the Lord is with him. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea. So again, we've got two kingdoms. Hosea is still king up in Israel. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. So we know what happened was Israel... The northern kingdom stopped paying tribute. The king of Assyria got upset, and he takes him over. Now, we know from God's point of view that that was God's punishment because Israel did not turn back to the Lord. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the harbor and the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes because... They did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So imagine when you're in Judah and you hear that, the fear that they must have felt. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so eight years later, Sennacherib, there's a new king in Assyria, 
king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had laid. He gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris and the Rabshakeh with his great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway to the washer's field. When they called for their king, there came out to them Elikeim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So, context, Assyria sends some guys with a message. They come, they call for the king. The king sends out his three best men who are the recorder, the secretary, uh, and the one who's over the household. They come out, and here's what these guys from Assyria say. Say to Hezekiah, this guy who thinks he's tough and is not paying. Say to Hezekiah, the great king, king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words and strategy and power for war, uh, do you think that mere words, sorry, are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to part to set riders on them. How can you repulse us? And now that's, pause there. That's like a, that's an insult. Like, hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can get 2,000 riders. Making a point like you don't even have 2,000 soldiers with your army. How are you going to stand up against us? How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So this is the message they're giving these three guys. And now these three guys are getting kind of nervous because they know behind them there's a bunch of people from the city that can understand what these people are saying. And they're worried about fear spreading in the city. So look, look what they say. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah, say to the Rabshakeh, please, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of these people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to you and your master only, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Kids, that's poop and pee. So they're saying, listen, this affects the whole city. We're just going to tell everybody. We're not going to just tell you guys. We're going to tell the whole city. Then the Rabshakeh stood, so just to make sure everybody heard him, he stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Listen to this taunt. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. 
for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each of you his own fig tree. Each of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away with me to a land like your land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Listen to the pride of this guy. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shevravaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth. And they sent him to Isaiah, the son of of Amos. Here's our guy. Here's Isaiah. And they say to him, thus says Hezekiah, the day, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh who is master of the king of Assyria, uh, whom his master the king of Assyria sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, they're telling Isaiah, therefore lift up a prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, here's what the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Syria have reviled me, behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the story goes on. Rabshakeh returned to the king of Assyria, find him fighting another country. I mean, this guy is drunk on power. All right, he's just trying to take over everybody. And he sends messengers again to Hezekiah with a letter, again telling him not to trust in the Lord. Hezekiah gets the letter, spreads it out in front of the Lord. And this time, instead of sending people to Isaiah to have Isaiah pray for him, Hezekiah prays to God himself. And he says, O Lord, here." This letter that has been sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So then Isaiah sends word from God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about the Sennacherib king of Assyria I have heard. And the Lord gives a long answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And listen to what happens in verse 35 of chapter 19. And that night the angel of the Lord went out 
and struck down 185,000 in the group of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god. Adramalach and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ashardan, his son, reigned in his place. In the face of great fear, in the face of unthinkable odds, they trusted in the Lord and he saved them. May we not trust in anyone or anything other than the Lord. May we know that salvation is found in repentance and rest. And may we find the blessing of the strength of God for us as we rest and trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.